that message on uh, Ephesus has also touched my heart. And so ever since I've prepared for that sermon and have, um, I've been thinking about how do you return to your first love? Things are not exactly the same as when we first came to Christ. And uh, I do remember when I was talking to Lisa about it, when I first came to Christ, it was so new and fresh. I couldn't wait to talk to God. And he was constantly doing new things in my life. Uh, the, the truth was new. And the, the way the Holy Spirit manifested himself was new. So it was just, there was, um, it was bustling with activity and excitement. But what do you do when you've been in the faith for decades? Is it still fresh? How do you keep it fresh? Well, some of that is up to us, isn't it? And that is staying before the Lord, keeping humble hearts, doing like we did now, taking the time to just reflect. Say, God, work in my heart. Reveal your love to me and continue to change my heart. He who began a work will bring it to completion. So a lot of these challenges that we face or will continue to face by considering how Jesus addresses the churches uh, will will be in our hearts and our minds, and we'll have to figure out what does that look like for us. And this morning is no exception as we look at a church that was um, not given a direct rebuke. But I'm not so sure that, but they weren't given a direct rebuke from the Lord, but they're not off the hook in the sense that the challenge was basically to, to keep your post, to keep the faith even if it means death. So you see how the Christianity is constantly challenged with things. And if we don't press in and know God and know his word, whew, it may not bid, uh, bid well for us. So I pray that we would have humble hearts as we continue to study the words of the Lord. And we are in Revelation chapter 2. We're still in shallow waters comparatively to the rest of the book. That is, we haven't gotten into the really deep symbolism that we have to, we have to kind of scratch and peck and scratch our heads to, to figure out. But we're in the chapters where Jesus directly addresses the churches, and he addresses them uniquely. Uh, they all have unique situations that they're encountering. However, the message is not just for those churches. It's for all, Jesus says, who has ears to hear. And so anybody that will hear these words and apply it to their lives can be blessed by the living God. And the opposite can occur, and that is we can, get, we can be cold-hearted and decide not to heed these words and face the judgment that is so prevalent in the book of Revelation. So of the, five, of the seven churches, this is the only church that does not receive a direct rebuke from the Lord but just a, a commendation to stand their ground and a promise. So let's read our text in chapter 2 and beginning in verse 8. To the church of Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, 
that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Again, this letter is addressed to an angel. And in my research, I found that some of the um, the scholars that look at this passage have a tendency to insist that, well, what they're really, what Jesus really addressing is the leaders of the church, the pastors and the leader of the church, just because that just makes sense. It's kind of awkward for Jesus to address the angel, though he has John, their fellow brother, write the actual message and send it to him. So there's a struggle. There's no biblical support that this was that the word angel there actually stands for pastor or leader. Now, it does make sense that you would think, well, God, in the order of things, sets leaders over his churches. Why doesn't he address them? He doesn't. Not in this book. And keep in mind that this book is, is written from uh, heaven's perspective from a top down. So everything's kind of happening up here. And so rather than addressing the elders or the leaders of the church, which he does in other in uh, many other the epistles, he takes more of the top down, and he reminds us that we're not alone. He reminds us that in the heavenly realms, he has servants, angels that do his bidding. And so even, even when it comes to churches, there are angelic uh, beings that he places over them who fight battles and serve the Lord with great joy in ways that we may, we may never know. And he doesn't go into great detail about what it means to have an angel. So does New Covenant Fellowship have a particular angel that stands over us? I don't know. It could Usually the Lord sends many angels, but there are angels that are given guard. So there's no doubt that there are angels over churches. And we don't know exactly. We may never understand how the manifestation and the power of those angels and their, their servant's attitude are benefiting us, but just know... That we are not alone. This battle as described in Revelation is not just here on earth. It's in the heavenlies. And he mentions Satan. Satan is a big part of that battle. So he's addressing the whole church. The angel of the church. That would include the leaders. And that would include everybody in the congregation. And it reminds me of what he told Peter. I think about how much effort that Christ puts into the church. Christ is so invested in us. And it reminds me of the promise that he made to to Peter, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. There are so many things happening in the heavenly realms to keep that promise of Christ. And this is just an example. There may be times and places and people that have given in to evil There might be battles that we lose in our hearts. There might be battles that churches lose, communities, and even country. But God will not forsake his promise. And the book of Revelation is all about how God is bringing about his purpose. And God will absolutely win. And he will rid the universe and all of creation of evil. So God uses angels to win that war. Now this message this morning 
uh, has a lot of history in it. There's a lot of meaning packed in here. So you bear with me as we, uh, we go through that. But you'll recall that there are a, there's a formula to the way that Jesus addresses the churches. He uses this pretty strict formula. He identifies himself. Uh, he reaches back into chapter 1, if you will, and, and pulls, well, he identifies the church, but then he pulls one of his identities that he revealed himself as in chapter 1. He'll just take a sentence or a part of that, and he applies it to um, each church differently. So he reveals himself to each church uniquely as they need to be revealed to. In Ephesus, it was he who holds the stars and walks among the lampstands. So he wanted to make it clear to that church that he's there. He's there in his presence, and he is a God that examines things. And he has walked upon them, and he has examined them, and they have a lot of things in place, and they do a lot of things right. But in his examination, because he walks among the lampstands of churches, he found that they had lost their first love. To Smyrna, he says, he is the first and last who died and came to life. He chooses to reveal himself to this church in that way, and there's reason for that that you will soon see. And it has something to do with another aspect of the formula, and that, and that is that in these addresses, Jesus has a tendency to kind of recognize the geography or the culture of that particular town or city where the church is located. Because churches are also a part of the culture in which they are placed in. And so Jesus often draws uh, the commonality of that in these addresses. So our culture can affect us for better or worse. Uh, What are some of the cultural challenges we have here in rural and Southside Virginia out in the country? Well, one of the things, um, as a modern example, you know, Christ has planted this church. He's planted us here. Now, this area, as you well know, if you've been here for a while, you will know that if you think this is country, it was even more country 20, 50, 80 years ago. And there was a time where almost anywhere you looked or drove, you went, you passed one farm, and then another farm, and then another farm. So it was country, and people made their living primarily. I mean, you had your, still had your towns and so forth, but primarily this was an agrarian culture. And with that, you also have, uh, I think in this area, a pretty strong Christian tradition. So you have kind of country folks with a strong Christian uh, tradition or heritage here. So what that means is there are times where, uh, for lack of better words, churches or you or pastors may confront um, or encounter the good old boy syndrome. Now, what that means is that most people, a lot of people in this area, because of the country and because of the Christian heritage, that is that a lot of families were taught good morals. And they're good old boys, good old girls. You know, the guys will gladly hold the door open for you. The, the women will stand by their man. So, their men, there's good things here that come out of this. But... Just as today's farms are not as plentiful as they were, so is the Christian heritage is also faded. 
And what has happened is you have, you have generations now that are kind of trying to fuel themselves on the parents or the grandparents' faith. But they themselves do not invest. They're not plugged into Christ. But they would consider, many people in this kind of culture would consider themselves Christians. Of course I'm a Christian because granny was a Christian and she took me to Sunday school when I was a kid. And so there's this assumption because the family has a Christian heritage that people are Christians. And because they may be moral, they may be better than other people. And the problem is sometimes it's hard to reach people in that way because when you're convinced that you're a Christian based on your heritage or maybe just based on some of your cultural behavior, it can be hard to reach. So this is something that this church, this area, other churches in this area has to confront. Witnessing to people who might already think, already think that they're believers. Bringing the gospel to bear. So every culture has its challenge. Cities have their challenges. Um, all of these churches had their cultural challenges. You know, and along with this kind of good old boy syndrome, as some people that I've talked to about the gospel, I find that their theology primarily comes not from scripture, but from country songs. And, it, and we laugh, but there is truth in that. That when, with the good old boy syndrome and you're sold out to that heritage and, and that country song, that country singer, it's my favorite song, and man, I die on it, even though it may not be biblically correct theology. So you see there's challenges here. All these churches face their challenge. Well, what does this have to do with Smyrna? Smyrna was settled by the early Greeks, and it once was a very thriving city. It had a temple of Athena there. Um, worship was very important to the Greeks and other cultures. This was the hometown of the um, epic poet Homer, if you've ever studied uh, Greek history. It, it was located about 40 miles north of Ephesus, and you'll remember that if the letters were delivered from the Isle of Patmos in the Aegean Sea, the first place you would go is you'd hit Ephesus and then you would kind of go like in a V or, or an oval to come around and wind up and land. Lastly, the way that the letters would be delivered, you would end in Laodicea. So Ephesus was strong. I mean, um, Smyrna was strong and uh, they had some battles in their lives, in their, in their history Throughout the years, they were uh, in, a, in a fertile place so that they could grow good crops. They were also in a strategic commercial trading places where people would come, come and go. They had a port there, so it was a very commercial city. It had a large population of Jews. In the 6th century B.C., it was sacked and destroyed by the Persians. And then again... Um, in the 3rd century B.C., Alexander the Great came and he rebuilt the city into something that was, was very uh, remarkable. And today it is the blooming city of Izmir in modern-day Turkey. So in, in this sense, the history of that city was that it was a city that was wiped out, it died, but then came very much back to life historically. So people that were in Smyrna would understand this history that we had. 
And as we'll see, based on the overt persecution that this church was experiencing, some of these believers may have thought to themselves, is this the end of us? Is this the end of the church in Smyrna? Because we're kind of being surrounded. We're being smothered here. Some people are losing their lives. Lord, is this it? And so God gives them direction. Jesus identifies himself as the first and the last. He's the one that was dead, but now is alive. And so even in the introduction there, you see some hope for this church. Christ gets the final word. So the circumstances, what's the cause of the, the persecution, uh, the poverty, they're losing their jobs. It's not safe for some of them perhaps to be out in public because of their profession of the gospel. Well, the source in this day and age was the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire, uh, after the death of Augustus Caesar, they really loved their emperors. Of course, they were the world power at that time. After the death of Augustus Caesar, the Senate decided that it would be a proper thing to do uh, to worship him as a god, to give him divine recognition. And so they put it in policy to worship Augustus Caesar as a god after his death. So that became a practice of the Roman Empire. But then there was a, um, an emperor that decided, why should I wait till I die to be hailed as a god? And that would be Caligula. Uh, why don't I just um, push it through the Senate that I be worshipped as a god now? while I'm living. And so Caligula, Caligula was kind of a nutcase, and the Senate feared him so much that when he presented it, nobody had the guts to go against it. And he, he included his horse in this as well. Let's worship my horse as a god before I die. So he declares himself that kind of recognition um, there. So from this point on, Acknowledging a godlike status to an emperor became a part of the Roman culture. It was just what you did. And it became a very part, uh, important part of the Roman culture in that it really showed where your loyalties lie. It was kind of like a litmus test. You know that you're really on board and kind of safe if you worship the emperor and you pay homage to them as gods. Now, Christians, you know, were, we are commanded to acknowledge only one God, so you can kind of see where this is headed. But before we get there, the Romans had this unique way of conquering their people. As you know, we learned this in Bible history, <clears throat> that the Assyrians, well, when you conquer a people, you have to figure out a way to keep them down, to keep them in submission. And so different conquerors, kings, rulers, applied this in different ways. The Assyrians came in, say, for instance, to Israel, and they, they spread them all over the empire. The idea is there, you want to take a people, and you want to, you want to, um, create, you want to create a sit situation where they're powerless. So if you spread these tight families that would die for each other, these cultures, these communities, these faiths, you just spread them out, you disperse them, they can't get together and rebel against you. Now, Persia, they had a different technique, and, and we know this, of course, because Daniel was taken captivity. They would take their 
um, conquered people into captivity and, and try to uh, integrate them into their culture, but they keep their thumb on them in that way. The idea is this. You take people away from the things that they love the most. Take them away from their land and, and break up their families and then take them away from their gods that they relied on for protection in that land and then you can, um, you can you rule over those people. The Romans had kind of a unique approach to this. And they were known, of course, for their brutality. They were a brutal people. And if you didn't submit, you were probably, you, it would be the end of your life. But they also believed in peace. They would try to make efforts to make peace with their conquered peoples. And one of the ways that they did this was by... Um, for lack of better words, a god exchange or swapping gods. So they would, they would, in their mind, all the gods that people worshipped were the same gods as their gods. They just called them something different. I have my god of war, you have your god of war. I have my god of fertility, you have your god of fertility. You just call them something different. And so what they would do is say, look, we want to make peace with you, we've conquered you, but we would like to live in peace with you, and so let's um, exchange gods. And we'll accept your gods, and we'll worship your gods, because it didn't bother them, because they were the same gods, just with different names, and, but you are also required to worship our gods. Now this calls kind of a, a dilemma, because now you can't really appeal to your God for deliverance when your God is in, the, say, the pantheon of the Romans, the temple of the Romans, and it's the same God with a different name, and they're praying to that God. Now your enemies are praying to your God. They've accepted your God. So it really kind of confuses things. You see the problem there. But that was an effort to make peace with the folks. It was kind of trading gods or uh, swapping gods if you will. <clears throat> the, the Romans had lots of gods. Just recently I watched an episode of The Chosen. And it was the episode where Peter and Gaius were having a conversation about God. And Gaius couldn't, uh, the Roman soldier, he couldn't wrap his head around one God. When I go to the Pantheon, he said, and I worship many gods. Now, the Pantheon, pan meaning all, and theon, theos, is all gods. There's, it's filled with gods. And and we appeal to all the different gods depending on what our needs are. And so that was a very strong part of the Roman culture, was worship and worshiping these gods, calling upon these, <clears throat> these gods. Now there was one exception to this rule with the Romans. And this one exception was the Jews. So all the other Nations were required to swap gods and live by this deal or else. The Jews were not going to do it. The Jews were, um, you know, you can read the Gospels and you can tell they were a stubborn people. They were an entrenched people. And they were only going to go so far with things and that's it. Like they fought tooth and nail to maintain their identity. You read that in the Gospels, even as they crucified the Lord, they used their enemies to their advantage as much as they could. So the Jews were an exception because they were such an unruly people. The, the Romans gave them a pass, but it was also believed 
and I would say that pass was apparently by God's um, providence. It was also believed that the Romans, some of the Romans weren't even confident that the Jews had a God because they worshipped their God in a different way. All the other tribes and peoples, you had idols. In the pantheon, you had idols to worship. There were images, and yet we know in Scripture that one of the, the top commandments, the second command is, you shall have no graven image. You do not try to put me in an image. I can't be contained in an image. And they obeyed that law. And so when the Romans said, like, well, where's your God? Let's swap gods. Well, we don't have, we, our God is there. He's everywhere. We don't have an image. So some of them doubted if they really even had a God. So it got a little bit complicated in that sense. So how does this prep us for the persecution? Well, originally you remember that when Christians were persecuted, the source was not Rome. The source was the Jews. The source was the synagogues. Because the differences between Christianity and Judaism began to really widen when the gospel was brought to the Gentiles. Everything was, was pretty peaceful until then. The gospel was brought to the Gentiles. And so the first persecution came from the Jews, the Apostle Paul, who was Saul. This zealous little Pharisee, we got him on our team. The Christians don't stand a chance. He's going to go collect them. We'll imprison them. We'll do what we can to squash them. We know the end of that story. God got a hold of the Apostle Paul, and he became the very kind of person that he was sent out to persecute and control. And now he's uncontrollable in a different way. So the original onslaught of persecution came from the Jews, but then later on, as the gap widened between the beliefs of Judaism and uh, Christianity, some of the staunch Jews that refused to believe in Christ as the Messiah, who have this pass from the Romans of not having to worship or burn incense to the Roman gods or the emperors, they kind of blow the whistle on Christians and they disassociate with them with the Christians. They can't control the conversions that are taking place and the change and the shift in the faith that's taking place. And so what they do is they want to make it clear to the Romans they're no longer a part of us. See, originally they were a part of the Jews and so the Christians kind of had a pass regarding their worship. But now they're saying they're no longer a part of us. They have a different God. And so now the Romans, they're, they're, the eye is on the Christians. And now the Christians are, are demanded or commanded to burn incense to the emperors. That was the test of loyalty. And it's so interesting because you know in the epistles the teaching we receive from Christ about what kind of citizens we're supposed to be. I mean, in, in any town or city, in any place, Christians should be the utmost model citizens. We're, we're supposed to honor the king. We're supposed to... Uh, 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 obey the laws. We're supposed to love one another. We're supposed to work for our masters very heartily and with, with good attitudes as if we're working to the Lord. So if anybody should be an upstanding citizen and a blessing to any community, it would be Christians. And yet, unfortunately, though that could have been the case in these early centuries, the litmus test for the Romans 
and your loyalty was if you worship the emperor, if you burn incense to the emperor, and if you do not, you are an enemy and you will be persecuted. So despite what they may have done all for the good in their obedience to the epistles and the teachings of Christ as far as their citizenship goes, they didn't pass this test because they refused to worship like the Jews. They refused to worship any other gods because there is only one God. So as emperor worship grew, there were very, very localized persecutions. Now, emperor worship became a source of pride in Roman culture. I will compare it to um, you, you, you would want to set up a temple to a particular emperor, and that's your emperor. That's the one I'm going to worship. And it's kind of like in America here, we become fans of our favorite football team. We're very loyal fans. You know, you, got, you get guys up there in the stands and it's zero, zero degrees and they got no shirt because I'm loyal. I'm a loyal fan of this team. And it can be dangerous. You would not want to be um, in Philadelphia. You wouldn't want to be in Philadelphia this year cheering on the Chiefs in some bar. It could, it could cost something there. But they took great pride and in, in their city became identified with that. And we worship this emperor and, and it's, it's a big fanfare kind of thing. And so if you're not on board with that, it could become very, very dangerous. And that's how your loyalty was tied. That was the true test. So Jesus says to them in verse 9, I know, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. So you can look at it like this way. I'm losing a lot. You may lose your job. Nobody likes you anymore. You're not a fan. You're not a loyal member anymore. And there's one, and there are different ways to look at circumstances that are happening. But poverty and riches can be measured in different ways. They can be measured by different scales. You can measure your riches strictly by the material, the worldly riches. But Jesus says you can also measure your riches according to heaven's scales. And so there are times in your life when you may have little to nothing from a material standpoint. All of this may have been taken away from you. You lost it, whether it was a tragedy and a fire or persecution. The things that this world holds dear, and they're important, you can have little to none of those, and yet you can still be rich as a believer because there is more to this world. There's also the kingdom of heaven. And it doesn't operate exactly the same as the kingdom of the world. So you literally could be impoverished on earth and be rich in heaven. And it depends on our perspective. So there's an encouragement here. Jesus doesn't, Jesus says basically, I get it, I understand persecution. I understand I had no place to lay my head. I had no material riches to boast of. But that's not the end of the story. There are other things that are more valuable than earthly riches. He said, Jesus taught in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So things can happen to our treasures on earth. They're vulnerable. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So that... So he identifies with them, but he wants them, he wants to open their eyes to the other way of looking at their situation. And that is when you lost, and you might feel like you've lost everything, you might feel like you're beaten down, you've got nothing. That's never true for the Christian. You actually have an abundance of value and worth and riches. Because what happens on earth is just a part of our story, not the end of our story. And some people, it may, some people may be called to give up things. Now, I know that we live in the wealthiest nation and culture that's ever existed. But even in, in America, you know, we, there's times where we suffer loss. Or from our perspective, we, we just don't have what everybody else has and we're considered impoverished. So I don't want to just rule this out for other cultures. We feel the pain. We feel the loss. We feel the the lack of benefits and privileges that other people have. But though we have little here, God is saying, no, you're rich. Look at your life in this way. Look at your situation. Look at the persecution. Consider your pain, though it's real, and you do lack and that's not fun. That's real persecution. That's hard. It's very hard and it's suffering. But consider this. You are rich. And the only way you can understand that is if you know Christ. And if you know how the kingdom operates. And you know that you can lose everything. And be demoralized in this world and persecuted. And your life can be snuffed out. But you have not lost. You have only really gained. And that's a Christian perspective. And it's so easy to say, but it is so hard to live when we are suffering, when we're being challenged. And it could be something as simple as, hey, I witnessed the people at work and now nobody likes me. I, I have to sit by myself at school to eat lunch. Nobody wants to identify with me. That's, that's a persecution that we feel. But we need to realize that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And yes, it's loss, but don't just focus on the loss, Jesus is saying. Don't forget about the game. Don't forget about the other things that are happening behind the scenes. Because that's what will encourage you. That's what will carry you. We have these choices to make. What's, what do we value more? And what if Jesus said, as a matter of fact, persecution might even draw you closer to me so that you can see me more clearly and and have me in that way, what do you value more? Would you rather have your comfort or would you rather these trials bring you closer and actually give you a clear perspective on life as it really is? There's different scales to measure poverty and riches and Jesus says, you want the scale to be heavy on heaven's side. Whether or not it's heavy on earth's side. 
So then we talk, he talks about, he brings up the synagogue of Satan, the slander of those in verse 9, who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So there's a large population of Jews here, and you probably know what this is about. You know that the Jews struggled with the Christian faith. They struggled with the gospel because they uh, dug their feet into the fact that, no, I'm Abraham's seed, and I'm circumcised. I bear the sign of the covenant, so I am a true child of God, and you are not a true child of God. And they get into that um, battle there that we read frequently about in the Gospels. They think that that's what makes them a child of God, and it's the outward uh, symbol. And yet in Romans 2.29, the Apostle Paul reminds us that that's not how it works. That's not what a true Jew is. A true Jew is not one that's circumcised on the outside. It's one who has a circumcised heart. So there's this battle going on here. They're claiming to be God's true followers. And yet Jesus says, no, actually they're not the true followers. They're not the true children of God. They're of the synagogue of Satan because they're leading people astray. And they, they claim to be the gatekeepers of life. And yet they're poison. And both Jesus and John the Baptist identified these kind of Jews in the Gospels as brood of vipers. You're, you're poison. And snakes and vipers in Scripture always represent something evil. And remember, Revelation uses harsh words on purpose to get our attention. And he just, instead of saying you went wrong or your, your teaching is off, he says you are a synagogue of Satan. You're not teaching the truth. You're not leading people to life in no uncertain terms. And then lastly, what does Christ say about this? Well, he gives the promise to his dear people in his church. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And it, what other kind of comfort can you give? If this is real life and this is your story and you're about to die, or you may, you may be facing it's a possibility. These are the words. It's not, no, I'm going to rescue you in a physical way. It's that you have been rescued in a spiritual way. I've, I've died for you. I'm a sovereign Lord. And, and what you lose in this world is nothing compared to what you gain by believing in me and trusting in me as your king. Satan means all of this for your harm, we're told in Scripture, but I mean it for your good. And so the important part of Christian faith and Christian living is knowing what to do with tribulation, knowing how to package it, knowing how to approach it. And a lot of times, suffering and persecution just stops us dead in, the, in our tracks. And what I find myself doing many times is I just focus on what Satan's doing, the harm, the persecution, the affliction or whatever, the thorn in the flesh, and I get, a, I get a fixated on that. But there's another side that we can look at. And if you use that illustration of the thorn, the Apostle Paul had a thorn in his flesh. It was pestering him. It was bothering him. And he prayed several times. It was so difficult. Not just once, but several times. God, I can't bear this. Take this from me. This affliction from me. 
And God says, no, actually, I gave that, I permitted that affliction so that you would not be arrogant. So if you take that illustration, Satan wants Paul to be constantly miserable. And yet, what does God do with it? He says, actually, you're going to come out of this even godlier, more godly than you were. You're going to be more humble. You're going to be more like me because of this. So focus on that part. And I think it's an encouragement here for us to focus on not be fixated and, and, and only um, have this myopic view of all of our misery and all the things that we're losing. But God is always doing something in that. He is always doing something in everything we as believers encounter in life. So let's look at that and focus on that and see that as a good thing and be excited that God is making us more like himself. He is setting us free from sins that keep us in bondage. He wants us to rise above that with a kingdom perspective. And the way we do that, he says, is you have to hold on to your faith. You've got to love me enough. You've got to know who I really am. You've got to hold on because when you hold on, that's when the promises really kick in. You see, in this world, the promises of Christ are more in seed form. They haven't been fulfilled yet. They're being fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. But the, the, the flower blooms and blossoms when we get into heaven. That's when our eyes are really opened. And that's when we, we receive the fullness of the promises of Christ. But we can be encouraged why we are still, still here on earth. That God is always up to something. He is always doing something good in us and for us. So he encourages them and, and also prepares them in this way for what is to come. What's to come? Persecution. He uses the word ten days. And you'll know in Revelation, don't, don't get caught up with the numbers because they're symbolic. And very seldom do they actually mean literally ten days. Because if you think, wow, 10 days in jail, I can do that. That's not so bad, especially in, in a, a local jail. At least I'll have something to eat. But it's symbolic for, a, a, for completeness and for a full season. So they will, have a, they will enter into a season of persecution, but they'll also come out of it. It's a temporary thing there for, for a full period. And Christ says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So let me close with a quote uh, from D.A. Carson. He says, There's a choice to be made here between the life the world gives and the life God gives. Now you can deny the faith and have life now. You spare your life. Or you can acknowledge the faith, faith face death now and then life. So what's it going to be? That's a contrast that comes out again and again in the book of Revelation. A little later on, he says in chapter 13 and 14, you can have the mark of the beast on you and face the wrath of God, or you can have the mark of God on you and face the wrath of the beast. What's it going to be? Which one do you want? We're going to face one of them. We're going to be either here or there based on our choice. So what wrath do we want to face? What life do we want to have? When do we want to have it? Blessing in one hand, curse and condemnation in the other. So the book of Revelation really constantly pushes us to that. 
pushes us to what do you really believe? What do you really live for? What do you value? Because we still have a choice right now. But that choice will end. This is the age of the gospel where you can believe in Christ freely. But when Christ the King returns, the age of the gospel, that period will be over. And there will be no more days where we can say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I've changed my mind. This is it. This is the gift of God, our lives, to, to hear God's word, to have God's word, and to have access to it, to have access to our brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage us on the faith. All of these things are great gifts of God. But they point us, they, they lead us to the edge of our decision. So overcoming in this for this particular church is to overcome their unique battle, and that is to hold on to the faith, overcome the fears, don't give up, even if it means prison, even if it means death. Jesus says, that's okay, I got a plan for that. I know it's hard, but I have a plan. So we all have to decide who our real enemies are. We all have to decide who wants our ultimate good. Who knows best? We all have to decide what to treasure and what to fear the most. May God's word form and fashion and transform our minds into a people that love and treasure Christ above all things. That's our calling. And may we do that together. May God bless the preaching of his word.